morning. With as many Ukrainians in this room, I might as well say privyet, but uh, some of you don't know what that means. It's, it's, it's hello in Ukrainian. It's, that's what I'm told by my Ukrainian friends, unless they're playing a, a practical joke on me. My name's Andy Schmitz. As Pastor Phil said, uh, my wife, Jenna, and I are about to transition from uh, Redeeming Grace Chapel down to the great state of Kentucky. Uh, I consider Kentucky the, the promised land as far as I'm concerned. There's probably something biblical, theological off about that, but it's what I believe in my heart. Uh, it's, it's a joy to be going down there. I'm going to be an active duty Army chaplain with the 101st Airborne Division. And so if you would please pray that the Lord would bless our ministry as we make disciples of soldiers who are currently walking in darkness, they're walking in rebellion and separated from God. These, these soldiers, don't get me wrong, I think they're heroes, but they're also morally corrupt. And anyone who spent any time in the military would say a hearty amen or oorah or hua. These, these soldiers need the good news of Jesus Christ to change them from the, from the inside out. So it's a sincere joy and pleasure for me to be with you all uh, preaching the word to you. As Pastor Phil said, I'm going to be preaching from Ephesians in chapter 2. Uh, if you're using your pew Bibles, that's page 976. Pastor Phil has told me that you all are undergoing this season of renewing your covenant with one another. What, and he asked me to preach on what does it mean to be in gospel covenant with other members in a local body of the local church. And that's a subject that is near and dear to my heart. And so I am more than happy to accommodate that request. So I'm going to be preaching on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So if you would please read along with me. There's a lot in these verses. I'm going to focus on the end of this passage where it talks about what it means to be members of the household of God and fellow citizens in the same kingdom. This is all really rich language that describes the church, but in order to end up where Paul ends up, I want to begin where Paul begins, at least in this train of thought, in verse 11. So here's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. Father, we confess our neediness and our weakness. I pray that you would pour your Spirit out, that I would be faithful, not creative, but that the Word of God would be preached faithfully. And I pray that as a result, that if there's any here who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you would bring them to a saving faith and knowledge in your Son. And for the saints here at Embassy Church, that they would recovenant together with each other for the glory of Jesus and for their joy because of the gospel of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I got a notification, uh, I think it was last month, from Facebook that 10 years ago, I became friends with Jenna Prana, who's now Jenna Schmitz. And I, I remember that time, and it just reminded me how unlikely it was that Jenna and I, Jenna and I would get together. Uh, I just didn't have a lot going for me to stand a chance. Jenna was just so far out of my league. Like, she's, she's probably about, she's a 10, and I'm about a 2 on a, on a good day. Uh, there's just a lot of differences between Jenna and I that kind of stacks the deck against me. Uh, Jenna grew, grew up uh, being very athletic. Uh, even through college, she had a scholarship being on a varsity uh, track team. I grew up trying to be athletic. My, my dad really wanted me to be athletic, but it was after I lost every single wrestling match, including wrestling, uh, being pinned by a girl, that we just realized athletics just is not my gift. I had a lot going against me. Jenna conquers at Scrabble. I cheat at Scrabble. <laughs> when we started dating, uh, Jenna uh, was already graduated from Olivet Nazarene University. She had already uh, moved overseas to Scotland, gotten baptized in the North Sea, and moved back and was working a full-time job. And I was accomplished at growing a neck beard and being 20 years old in college. I was, I was a junior. That's all I had going for me when I tried starting to pursue Jenna. And even at that, when I tried reaching out to Jenna, it at first didn't go well. I, I, I reached out and tried to initiate just getting together, and she didn't respond. So I tried a second time, and she didn't respond. I tried a third time, and she still didn't respond. So then I had to call a mutual friend like, hey, did I say something wrong to Jenna Prana? Could you talk to her for me? It was only after he persuaded her to talk to me that she actually finally uh, gave me a, a call back. So I had a lot going against me. Uh, there was not a lot going for me. And by God's sheer grace, I ended up with such a wonderful woman. That's a similar point that what Paul is making in Ephesians 2, that the Gentiles that he's writing to didn't have a lot going for them when it came to them being included in his kingdom. In fact, I can say it a little, a little bit more steeper. Not only did they not have a lot going for them, 
they had a lot going against them, making them extremely unlikely. In fact, we could say it's impossible for these Gentiles to ever go to heaven apart from God's sheer grace in Christ. And Paul's wanting to encourage this church in Ephesus in the first century to appreciate the unity that they now have with God and with one another by reminding them of how far they were removed at first from God himself. In fact, he starts off Ephesians 2.11 by listing six things that they had going against them when it came to separating them from God. And that, so here's my point number one. Point number one is just remember. Because that's how Paul starts Ephesians 2.11. He wants this point to be made clear. Let's count off the six things, uh, starting in verse 11, that these Gentiles, and by extension, us, that we have going against us when it comes to our candidacy in God's kingdom. So here's the, the first thing that Paul reminds the Gentiles of. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh with hands. So that's, by the way, the first thing they had going against them. They were uncircumcised. God, in the beginning, created everything good. If you think back to Genesis 1, uh, the heavens, the earth, Adam, Eve, everything was created perfect, without sin, without blemish. God walked in full communion with man, and then, in short order, man messed up. Man sinned, was separated from God by sin, and all of the world was plunged into darkness. The image of God fractured in man. Uh, creation was cast into chaos, but God had a plan that Paul says in Ephesians 1 started before the ages even began to redeem what was lost. And he did it by covenanting with unworthy people in the Old Testament. One of the people was Abraham. God chose a nobody like Abraham, gave him a covenant, said, I am going to bless you, not according to merit, but because I'm gracious. I'm going to bless you and all of your offspring. This was one of the key covenants in the Old Testament that God was structuring to anticipate the coming of Jesus. That eventually a descendant of Abraham, who was eventually going to be Jesus, would make everything whole that had been broken. And the sign of this covenant that God had given this promise of redemption was circumcision. These Gentiles, however, in Ephesians 2, were uncircumcised. They, they were not part of this genealogical lineage of redemption. That's the first thing they had going against them. Here's the second thing. Verse 12. Remember that, at, uh, that you were at that time separated from Christ. That's number two. These Gentiles, they weren't born united with Christ. They were born separated from Christ. What's the third thing? It's the next phrase. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were alienated from this commonwealth. You see, in the old covenant, God's people were a political nation. And God blessed them richly. I mean, have you read First and Second Kings recently? All this wealth that God blessed his covenant people Israel so that they were intended to be a light to the nations. Redemption and material wealth and recipients of all these glorious blessings, but not these Gentiles. They were separated from the commonwealth 
of Israel. Because in Paul's ethnic dichotomy of the world, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. Those are the two categories. There's Jews and everyone else. And these Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The fourth thing they had going against them, Paul says they were strangers to the covenants of promise. We've already talked about one covenant already this morning, the covenant with Abraham. There's also a covenant through Moses. There was a covenant with David and other covenants in there as well. And these Gentiles, they weren't familiar with these covenants. They were strangers to these covenants. Can can you understand, can you appreciate Paul's intent here? He's just trying to paint this picture so there is no mistaking it. You Gentiles were far away from God. You read the Old Testament, all this salvific history, you are foreign to that history just by nature because of our sin. What's this next phrase that he uses in verse 12? He says, having no hope. That's the fifth thing they have going against them. Friends, anyone who is not a believer in Jesus has no hope. That is how desperate their plight is. They have no hope apart from Jesus. And then lastly, and this is almost deafening, this sixth thing. Paul says, wrapping up verse 12, and they are without God in the world. Never mind this, I'm spiritual but not religious. Apart from Jesus, we don't have God in the world. This seems bleak, doesn't it? Like This is kind of like a sad sermon so far, and it's supposed to be because Paul is painting a bleak picture of these Gentiles to begin with. They were separated from God. They had a lot going against them. There was a separation, and even even in the structure of the temple in the Old Testament, there was a dividing wall between outer court, inner court. Gentiles were not allowed in. One of the commentators says this, there is an inscription on the wall of the outer courtyard of the Jerusalem temple warning Gentiles that they would only have themselves to blame for their death if they passed beyond it into the inner courts. Paul may or may not have been alluding to this wall, but it well illustrates Christ's reconciliation of all people into a new humanity. Friends, Gentiles, all of us by nature are not born in a good relationship with God, but at enmity toward God. That's the sad truth. In Paul's, in Paul's theology in Ephesians 2, what is so glorious about the gospel of Jesus is that it includes people who are, it reconciles people who were formerly far off, having no hope and without God, and it brings them into his own family. We, we are called children of God. But that's only good news if you realize the bad news that we are by nature children of God wrath. Skip back to chapter 2 verse 3 with me. This is what Paul just got done saying. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, we are not born children of God. 
We are born children of wrath. Because we are born with a sin nature and we sin, it separates us from a holy God who will not tolerate sin in his presence. We are born separated. And Paul wants his readers to remember these things. We have no inherent salvific value. When God looks at us in our sin, in our rebellion, in our deadness... He is offended at what he sees. Keep reading with me. Let's, let's skip down to verse 16. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friends, by nature, between us and God, there's not a warmth, there is not family relations, there is hostility that God has against us in our sins. Have you really realized this? That the holy God of the universe is hostile towards sinners. Have you ever been in a hostile work environment? Has anyone ever been hostile towards you? Friends, that is but a small glimpse of the hostility that is impending against all unbelievers from a holy, righteous, all-powerful God. There is hostility. I love how Paul writes. Because in verse 13, there is a glorious transition. So remember point one was remember. Point two is, is but now. Let's read this, but now. It's it's a transition statement. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And just like Eddie read in our scripture reading, Paul's quoting verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Friend, do you remember how much you had going against you when it came to your likelihood of ever being a child of God? Let me caution you. There's some sweet things that Paul is talking about when it comes to the peace we now have in Christ. But you will dilute that and downplay it if you also first minimize your sin, your unworthiness, your rebellion. If you minimize the hostility that God had against us in our sin, you will minimize the work of Jesus on the cross. Friends, we racked up a sin debt that we will never be able to repay. But Jesus paid it in full on the cross through shedding his blood. And it's only when we really come to grips with the depth of our sin that we can be stunned by the glorious grace displayed by Christ on the cross. 
And this was God's plan before the ages even began. The only Son of God died so that children of wrath could become children of God. Can I say that one more time? The only Son of God died so that the children of wrath could become children of God. Friends, did you notice in verse 17 who Jesus preaches peace to? He preaches peace both to those who are far off and to those who are near. You just have to remember, Paul, a Jew, is writing to Gentiles. And so in this category, the Gentiles are far off and Paul, a Jew, is near. Jews are near to the covenant of God. They have a lot of advantages. To them belong the recipients and the, or the, the covenants and the patriarchs and the whole testament. It's, it's really geared towards God loving Israel and setting his promise and his love on Israel. But they still need peace preached to them. So friend, whether you are far off or you are close, you need peace preached to you through Christ. Whether you are a rank and file sinner and this is your first time stepping in a church and you have walked in utter stark rebellion your entire life or if you've gone to church your entire life and you've had proximity to the preaching of the word and God's covenant people, you grew up singing uh, Christian songs and yes, Jesus loves me, but if you still aren't actually a believer, you haven't been changed by God from your heart, you haven't been resurrected from the dead, you, even you, need peace preached to you. And by God's grace, you do have peace preached to you. You can have your account settled with God because he has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We don't need to try to earn God's love. First of all, we can't earn God's love. And second of all, we don't need to because Jesus has done everything for us. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law expressed in ordinances. Jesus died as a substitute on the cross, shedding his own blood, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus was raised on the third day, victorious over Satan, over sin, and over death. He ascended at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming again. And he was given as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, make no mistake about it. Either Christ was killed on our behalf or God will kill you. Either Christ has paid for your sin debt or you will spend the rest of eternity paying for it yourself. And God's wrath will never run out because our sin against him is infinitely offensive. But you can have peace. Friend, I, I beg you this morning, if you're not a Christian, let today be the day that you entrust yourself to Jesus and you will find that he preaches peace to you for the rest of your days. That's such a sweet thing. And Christian, can you appreciate how much it took to make you a Christian? All the cost that Jesus paid in full, all the work that the Holy Spirit did in you. Did you notice the work of the Trinity in verse 18? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, them working in sync, in tandem, is what it takes for us to become Christians. Paul says, for through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit 
to the Father. Friends, this is glorious. I, I love, here, that's just point two, but now. There's bad news, but there's even now better news in Christ. Beloved, do not underestimate the depth of your, our sin in the sight of a holy God. We didn't first choose him. We didn't first obey him, seek him. Instead, he did all of those things on our behalf. That's good news. Here's point number three. Church membership. That's where Paul's getting at. This isn't just good news in the abstract. This is good news applied to Jesus being head over all things in the church. That's how he ends chapter 1 in verse 23. Chapter 1 is this big, long, run-on sentence about all the glorious riches of God's grace expressed in the gospel that began before the ages began and is summed up fully through the power of the Spirit and it's all taking place in the church which is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 22, and 23. And that's where Paul's getting at here at the end of chapter 2 as well. So here's point number three, his church membership. So what's the so then? What's the result of this? Read with me in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, you were, but no longer. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built of the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's a lot of Old Testament imagery there. Friend, even if you don't have a lick of Jewish blood in you, the Old Testament is your heritage if you are in Christ. Because Jesus fulfills the Old Testament gloriously and intentionally. Did you notice earlier Paul said that we were separated from God, there was a dividing wall, and Jesus divided, uh, in verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's talking about the Mosaic covenant. Friends, we were separated from the covenants of promise by a covenant, but now Jesus, who perfectly fulfills those covenants, now gives us all the covenant blessings. Friends, we have all the covenant blessings in the Old Testament, all these glorious passages that you've read. They are true for us in Christ. And gloriously so. Jesus is fulfilling all these Old Testament images and structures. And it's all about him. And we are in him. Did you notice all these things that Paul just listed? We're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Friends, there's a lot even just in that phrase. That I don't have time to unpack all of it. Suffice it to say, the other day I was reading uh, with a guy in our church named Ken Moore. Uh, we were reading Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And there was a moment I was reading through it with him, and J.I. Packer said something. I was like, oh man, I, I don't know if that's right. J.I. Packer said that the doctrine of justification is not the peak of the gospel of Jesus. I was like, oh no, J.I., where are you going with this? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm discipling someone with this book. What, what are you talking about? 
J.I. Packer goes on to say, justification isn't the peak of the gospel. Adoption is. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says we're members of the household of God. Christian, you're not just objectively right in God's sight. He doesn't just stoically stamp approved on the Christian's forehead. He loves you and has made you part of his own family. Jesus has died as the only son of God to make children of wrath children of God. So now God is our father. Jesus is our brother. We have been adopted by the spirit of adoption. If you are a Christian, you are part of God's family. Oh, that is such good news. We're members of the household of God that is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Friends, that's, that's Old Testament throwback right there. Like th- th- this is the, the temple in the Old Testament was the meeting place between God and man where sacrifices were offered and now the body of Christ, the church, is this new temple. Jesus is the fulfillment. This is the place where we are members of the same household. Paul said in verse 19, we're fellow citizens. This is where we get our citizenship, which I think is especially and neatly applicable for embassy church. Jesus, in one sense, is our embassy. He is the the meeting place between God and man where we get citizenship in this other kingdom. There's been a transfer of citizenship from a domain of darkness to God's kingdom in Christ. So what does it mean to be part of embassy church? It means that. It means glorifying Christ by making disciples of all nations together in Christ. And Paul ends in verse 22. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see yourself as a body, as Christ's body, as part of God's household? I hope that you do, and that's really where I'm going with this, is this is a lot of new covenant language. So when we're talking about church covenants, this is really rich for us to meditate on. I would love for you, even after today, you should probably memorize this passage so you can be reminded what does it mean to be a member of a church, to be a part of God's kingdom. It will remind you of how far you've come from. It will remind you of the work of the cross And then it will remind you of what you need to be thinking about when it comes to covenant church membership. And I have a few meditations on this. But I just want to emphasize this reconciliation that Paul is talking about here, he's making clear it's both vertical and it's horizontal. Here's what I mean by that. We have been reconciled, Paul says, between us and God through Christ. We now have reconciliation here And Paul immediately applies it horizontally. We are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. And we are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We're being built together into this holy temple. Friends, if you've been reconciled to God, that means you are also being reconciled to one another. Can I say that one more time? If you've been reconciled to God, through the gospel, you are being reconciled with one another, other Christians together. In the church broadly, but local church specifically. Paul keeps grounding this in the local church. 
did it in uh, chapter 1. He's doing it in chapter 2. Trust me, he does it in chapter 3. And he applies it from 3 to 6 in really practical, nitty-gritty ways. That these two ethnicities, Jew and Gentile, are now part of one new mankind. One new ethnicity in Jesus Christ. Don't you love Galatians 3? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Friends, that's good news. The gospel conquers ethnic division. The local church ought to be the place where racial Harmony is showcased because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Really, Ephesians 2 is about ethnic reconciliation in that sense. Paul, a Jew, is writing to Gentiles that they're now part of the same family. That's good news. This is radical, and only the gospel can do it. And it does it gloriously. So think about the most radical differences you can have with another person. Everyday and radical differences. Blue collar, white collar. Ukrainian, Indian. Armenian, wealthy, poor, Cubs fans, Sox fans. We are all one in Christ if we have turned away from our sins and trusted by faith in Jesus. What we have in common in the gospel is far more important than what could ever possibly divide us. The gospel is the only grounds for unity in the local church. Because we were all far off, but been brought near by the same cross, by the same blood shed on the same cross, by the same Son of God. So really, we can say, I like how Mark Dever says it, the church is the gospel made visible. It's a powerful metaphor and result of the gospel is the local church. When people who come from very different walks of life all live in loving harmony with one another. We are members of the same household, members of the same body. And so I, I want to just meditate on four implications of this, the local church being the gospel made visible. Four, four things, if you're taking notes, you can write them down. Actually, I'll just ask them in question form. So I have four questions about the local church. Question one. Are you a member of the local church? Are you a member of a local church? A lot of people, when they use that phrase, I'm, I am spiritual, but I'm not religious, they're really communicating, I don't really subscribe to organized religion. I have a, a thriving spirituality, spirituality practice between me and God. I, I, I don't have to be in a building to worship God. I can be out in nature. I can be at my job. I can be commuting. I can sing praises. I can read my Bible anywhere. So I can practice my spirituality anywhere. What do I need the local church for? Friends, you can only say that if you don't read the Bible. Because already in Ephesians, it's clear that Paul, Paul's gospel reconciles us in covenant with God vertically and with one another horizontally. The New Testament, let me assure you, is completely foreign to the idea that anyone can be a Lone Ranger Christian. 
That's just so weird. If you have one sermon takeaway, one quote from Andy, it's that's weird to not be a member of a local church according to the Bible. Every Christian in the New Testament is part or striving to be a part of a local church where they have covenanted together, submitted to the authority of a local church. Why would you think that you're an exception? And friends, can I just confess this? For me, it's a blessing to be a member of a local church. I love it. It's a good thing to submit to authority and invite accountability and to serve and to be served. It's a good design in the Bible for us to be part of local assemblies. Are you a member of a local church? I'm reminded of Hebrews 13, 17. I'll just read it out loud to you. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Friend, if you're not a member of a local church, I wonder, how do you obey Hebrews 13 when it says, obey your leaders? In context, he's clearly referring to pastors in in a church. Friends, if you're not a member of a local church, what leaders are you obeying? How do you know which ones to submit to? Is it every pastor everywhere in the world? That'd be kind of tough, and that just doesn't make sense, and you'd run into a lot of problems. I think it's clear that the only way to really obey and be in conformity with Hebrews 13, 17, and Ephesians 2 for that matter, is to be part of a local church. If, if you were to ask a member of Embassy Church, who do you submit to when it comes to Hebrews 13, 17? Like, who are your leaders that you submit to? They'd be really quick to say, the elders of, of Embassy Church, Phil and Paul and Ryan and Kenny, right? I think it should be that easy to answer the question of who, do, who are your leaders that you submit to? That's my first question about church membership. Are you a member of a local church? Let me just say, you ought to be a member of a local church. It's just very clear that you ought to be. Here's my second question. What kind of member are you? So if you are a member, what kind of member are you? I want to think about this especially in light of Hebrews 13. When it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Friends, I know each and every one of your elders takes this verse seriously that they're going to give an account because they're uh, keeping watch over your souls. But the author of Hebrews goes on and says something else. He says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So let me ask the question again. What kind of member are you? When your elders see you walking up to them, are they inwardly tensing up and asking God, give me grace, I'm going to need it again. Or when they see you walking up to them, they just know, I'm about to be genuinely blessed and encouraged. This person is going to make it easy for me to joyfully shepherd them. Friends, I think that there's ownership for both pastors and members in Hebrews 13, 17. I think pastors, we need to be reminded, you need a shepherd with joy. It's not an option. 
joyless pastorate is a fraud because it doesn't look like Jesus. Jesus was the most joyful person ever. He's the chief shepherd, and so under-shepherds ought to be joyful like Jesus. But also, the author of Hebrews is writing to a church. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you see how he's putting the ownership partially on the congregation to have their pastor shepherd them with joy? It's in your best interest that your elders shepherd you with joy and not with groaning. Otherwise, it'd be no advantage. Friend, do you make it easy for your pastors to shepherd you with joy? When was the last time you just went out of your way to consistently and specially bless your pastors and encourage them in the gospel? I encourage you to do that. So that's my, that's my second question. What kind of member are you? Here's my third question. Do you see the local church as more of a restaurant or family meal? Someone else has come up with that analogy before. I don't know who first did it, but I think it's a great analogy. I'll ask the question again. Do you see the local church as more of a restaurant or family meal? Here's the difference. Maybe some of you are going to go out to a restaurant for lunch or dinner today. You are going to make a request to someone else who's going to come. They're called a server. You're going to put in your order, and they're going to take your order while you just sit sipping your water or water with lemon, or unsweet iced tea, or coffee, and they're going to take it back and someone else is going to cook it for you, and then they're going to bring it out on uh, dishes that you did not wash and place it in front of you and regularly refill. You're going to be served. That's, that's what it means to go to a restaurant. If you tried acting like you're at a restaurant at a family meal, you're going to be in trouble. If you say, oh, I'll have the caviar today, mother or brother, and you kind of like snap your fingers and I want to refill over here, someone's going to be like, get it yourself, right? A family meal is not where you're just like, come and cater to my every whim. It's I'm an active participant and I get as much out of this when I serve as much as when I'm being served. I'm going to help set the table. I'm going to help hang up the coats. I'm going to help cook. I'm going to help fill other people's dishes. I'm going to pass the plate around. I'm going to help clean up the dishes afterwards. You're, you're actively involved, and that's the difference between viewing the local church as a professional club versus a local family of God. When you come to church, do you expect to be served, or are you eager to serve? I love Mark 10, 25. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, if what the Christian life is is continually and progressively becoming more and more like Jesus, we will love more and more serving other people instead of demanding to be served ourselves. When you come to church, on Sundays and when you are part of the church for the rest of the week in small groups and other times, do you have a reputation? Would other people honestly say this about you? That you have a servant's heart. You are not demanding and selfish, but really it's clear you've been liberated from that kind of selfishness. Matt Chandler calls it a, a drifting toward the mirror. 
Brian Regan will call it being a me monster. The local church is, should be filled with people who love serving one another because they've been served by the Son of God, Jesus himself. It's not like a, I have to do this, it's my duty. It's a joy to serve the people that Jesus has served. God's love changes us to love the same things he loves. Can I say that one more time? God's love changes us to love the same things he loves. First him, we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then we love our neighbor. And your closest neighbor is members of the local church. Your siblings in the faith, other people who were once far off and have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus' cross. Let me labor on this point for just a couple more minutes. Turn to Ephesians 4, 29. Remember at the end of Ephesians 2, it talked about we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this is really architectural language. We're being built into a building. Paul uses that kind of language in Ephesians 4, 29. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good, listen, for building up. There's that language again, building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Friends, as you're a member of the local church, I pray that there would be no spreading of gossip or slander or any kind of malice amongst the membership of embassy. And can I just say, I've been so encouraged because there has been so little. It's been such a joy for Jenna and I to be in a church that's being replanted by Embassy because Embassy is a glorious representation of the gospel by God's grace. I can tell you that for the past year and a half, as we've seen the walk of the leaders and the members, we've been so encouraged. For the past year and a half, I've been regularly attending your elders' meetings. And can I just say, your elders love you so much. They pray for you. They, they care about you. When you're not listening, they're praying for you. When, when you're not listening, they're trying to stoke one another up and equip one another to serve you. These men are faithfully laying down their lives for you like Jesus laid his life down for the church. They really do model, and it's been an encouragement for me, what it looks like to shepherd with joy. And I've been encouraged by when we've been around embassy that there hasn't been any corrupting talk that I've heard. I love reading verse 29 because it reminds me of you. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Friend, do you want to build up the local church at embassy? Be careful to not let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Do not gossip, don't slander, don't let coarse joking come out of your mouth, but be intentional to speak words that sound like Jesus. A grace-giving, restorative, reconciling word. I've seen you do this, and I pray that you would abound all the more in doing it. Last question. Question number four. Do you see yourself just as a recipient of the ministry of Embassy Church or as a participant in this church? 
Like when you're thinking about this mission statement of glorifying Christ by making disciples of all nations, do you check the box thinking, that's what we pay Pastor Phil for, right? The task is done. We've done our part. We are paying you full time to free you up to do ministry all your time. And we otherwise check out. Is that what you think? I don't think so, but I want to remind you that Phil's job as the fully paid pastor and the other elders here, their jobs, Paul says in Ephesians 4 actually, is to train members of the local church for works of ministry. The job of elders in the local church are not to replace members of the local church. They're to train you for ministry. Who's responsible for the ministry? It's every citizen of the kingdom of God. It's members of the household of God, which is each and every one of you. If you are a Christian and member of Embassy Church, it is a joy to serve one another and to be actively involved in evangelizing and making disciples. This is not a burden. This is a privilege. Friends, do you view it that way? Everything that I am doing in this local church, I I want to be trained by the pastors to build this body up. I want to use the gift that the Spirit's given me to build the body up. I want to take what I hear on Sunday mornings, this gospel preaching that comes in word and in power, and it propels me through the week to share the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone, whether they are far off or they are near. Friends, do you own the mission of the church? Well, you are the church, so you ought to. It's a joy. Friends, I want to encourage you, by the power of the Spirit, make disciples, evangelize, share your faith. Be equipped by the pastors to do it yourselves as well. Beloved, we had a lot going against us. Our selfishness, our sin, idolatry. We were by nature lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But God chose us in eternity past so that we would praise the glory of his grace. And he sent his son because of the great love with which he loved us. So that we who are far off and now been brought near, we are being built together with other spiritual family members into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, and we ask you, who's, far, who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, Father, we ascribe to you glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.